I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist. One of the best ways to find new podcasts is through word of mouth. With so many thousands of shows to choose from, there's nothing like an enthusiastic recommendation from a trusted friend. But what if you could hear the pitch from the podcasters themselves? Well, today on Podcast Playlist, we're going straight to the source and asking podcast hosts why we should listen to their shows. The CBC podcast Let's Make a is back for season three. And this time around, Ryan Beal, Mark Chavez, and Maddie Kelly are trying to write a horror script. In their previous seasons, the three comedians wrote an earnest sci-fi TV pilot called Progeny and a romantic comedy screenplay titled His Ex is Salma Hayek. Pretty good title, actually. But in Let's Make a Horror, there's a new twist. Not only are they going to try and write their own horror short film— they're also going to try and actually make it themselves. Mark Chavez is a writer, actor, and comedian and co-host of Let's Make a Horror, and he's here to tell us more about it. Mark, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much. I love being here. I really appreciate that. This is great. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you back, and I need to know how writing a horror compared to writing sci-fi and rom-coms. Uh, I found it really confusing and really difficult, and it made me want to quit being a writer and just just quit everything. Uh, writing comedy makes sense to us if you if if it makes us laugh or you feel like it's clever or something, you know, you'll put it on the page. But with horror, I have no idea how to write suspense in a screenplay. Mm. Like the 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 medium just it's not it's not enough. So that which is one of the reasons why we wanted to to make a film because I think we had to just do the thing, you know, to actually figure it out. But it, it's so confusing and really embarrassing to try to write scary dialogue. <laughs> Why is it embarrassing? Because you write something and you're like, okay, get ready to have your pants scared <laughs> off you. And then like your friends read it and they're like, my pants are fully still on. This is not scary at all. And it's, and then it's, it's so, it's so reliant on performance. And it, I mean, not that <laughs> it just sounded like I just blamed them for reading my script badly, but uh, it's relying on like that and sound and just like the, you know, and, and with film, so much is said with just a still shot and a slow dolly zoom, you know, like it, it, it just feels like a, like the medium should be, should be filmed. It should be done and should be filmed. Right. More of a practical, but it mm -hmm. sounds to me that there's, there's something very similar between horror and comedy. Oh yeah. Which is a reaction. You need a reaction, right? So Yeah, and the um the tension and release is a, that's a big one. I feel like they're really they're really related, which is why I think horror comedies work so well. Um you know, you make people laugh and then you build the tension back up and then are you going to laugh, you're going to scream. Um I think for sure. And I thought and that gave me false confidence going into it where I was like, <laughs> well, I know how to write comedy. This will be a cinch. Um and to be honest, I never think anything's going to be easy because even writing comedy is not easy. Like, it, mm -hmm. but it was really hard. And so, can you tell us a bit about the story you ended up coming up with? 
Yeah, I think I can. I think I can just say it all. Um, we all pitched ideas, and then we we wanted to do just like with uh, our um, sci-fi idea. We wanted to do a uh, something that really like was on the on the nose of that genre. With 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 the sci-fi, we'd want to do something in space that was in a spaceship. That's sci-fi. And with this one, we wanted to set it in a in a cabin in the woods, just to be a practically to shoot it because we knew we were going to shoot it. We wanted to keep the location really small. And B, because it just sounds like a horror film. He said it in a cabin in the woods. So this one, uh, was a, it was Ryan's idea um, that he pitched, and it's about a guy who really embarrasses himself in a kind of like major social way um, because of his uh, alcohol use and then decides to go to dry out and hide out in a cabin and just kind of be with his own shame. And then a... Uh, he gets this note when he gets there for this Airbnb kind of note that says like, okay, here's the Wi-Fi, blah, blah, blah. Actually, there's no Wi-Fi, but here's the, <laughs> and close it, close and lock the patio door, which is a very weird kind of specific note to get like every night, close and lock the patio door. And so come to find out that there is a scary man that comes to the patio door and tries to get in. <laughs> and uh, if it sounds ridiculous, it is, but uh, we think we're going to, we think we're going to sell it in a really scary way. Um, and I play the man that's at the patio door, which makes it even more unbelievable. It sounds terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> well, I think about it. Like if you're like in a strange, no, that's t- that would be terrifying yeah, to and me. Just a guy there. And the guy is like, just like very like casually trying to open the door. Like he's not like banging. He's not like, Hey, I need to get in. I, my car broke down. Like there's no, he's just staring at him, trying to get into the door and then he disappears. And so. Is it a figment of his imagination or not? But then he comes back, so probably not imagination. So I didn't give everything away. There is a, there's a bit of like nuance in the telling. Right. <laughs> right, right. Um, and as part of the podcast, you interviewed and got advice from some pretty big names in the world of horror. What was the best piece of advice you got? Yeah, we got we got a lot um, and a lot of really like usable advice. Um, a lot of people, and I think including uh, Eduardo Sanchez, who uh, was the... Um, uh, one of the co-creators of the Blair Witch Project said, um, you know, just start with what scares you, what, like what actually scares you as a person. And and so what scares you the most? Um, I always talk about when people ask me this, like what, like I find a phone ringing in a room that is not a room that I'm in very unsettling, <laughs> but like, but it's weird <laughs> because when we, we started talking to each other about what scares us, we're like, there's a ton of things, like, I don't know. Like being in a crashing airplane, that sounds scary. Like there's a lot of like, you know, scary things you could find yourself in, but like really close to like uncanny valley, close to what could actually happen. Like maybe there's like just a a face in a window that you see like and you're Mm -hmm. alone, you know, just like these like little like things that could happen. But, you know, if they do, they'll scare the pants off. You're like going to your... I don't know, like going to the bathroom later and you open the toilet and there's a face in the toilet. <laughs> that would be scary. <laughs> like things, things that don't uh, that don't normally happen. Like, I don't know. There's so many scary things. That would be but, scary. You're right. That yeah. would be scary. A like, face in the toilet. Yeah, um, like going to the oven, you're going to cook your dinner and you open the oven and there's a face in the oven. <laughs> like going so, to the fridge, you're like, oh, I could use a midnight snack. You open the fridge and there's a face in the fridge. So my my next question is, why should people listen to this show? And I'm wondering, besides the face in a yeah. fridge and 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 in a cupboard, what what you what you hope listeners get out of this show? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> like, what, what are you going to get out of this? <laughs> um, I think uh, 
I, I think we really, really are very honest in the show. We really, we really try. And that's what makes the show for me, like, as I've said before, a bit embarrassing, but I, I don't, I don't mind being embarrassed because I'm like, what do I got to lose? Um, so I think we, we, we really show what it's like to try to write something or at least how we would go about it. Uh, I think it's an honest look at, at, uh, at the writing process, the creating process from beginning to end. Um, and it's, it's fun and it's light and we have a really great rapport, the three of us, the three hosts, like we love to make each other laugh and it's like very, very fun. Um, and I think, uh, any, anybody who's interested in, in, in the, in the process at all would, I think, um, uh, really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And, and before you go, have you made any progress trying to sell your sci-fi or rom-com scripts from the last two seasons? Do you have any updates on that for us? Yeah, well, no, nothing I can talk about uh, okay. because of oh. lawyers, but uh, we are definitely um, going going down that path. If you're in the nothing we can talk about phase, that's huge. That <laughs> yeah. is. And that's, that can mean anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really huge. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us about this. Um, I'm really excited to listen. Thank you so much. Uh, and oh, look out behind you! Oh my gosh, there's a there's a face in the door. There's there, a face in it. the door. Okay, we got we it. did it. <laughs> Mark Chavez is the co-host of Let's Make a Horror from CBC Podcasts and Kelly and Kelly. It's out now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're gonna listen to a little bit of the first episode now. Here's Mark, Maddie, and Ryan. Okay, well, I haven't. I don't know how much I've gone into this with you guys. Before, but I don't watch horror movies at all. This is, this is great. <laughs> at all. And and the reason, and it, I think this is a double-edged sword for me with this project, because the reason I don't watch them is because I get really intense nightmares. Mm. So I don't need to feed into that. I'm kind of getting the show for free yeah. every night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't but need extra yeah. stimuli. Yeah. If I start writing those down, maybe I could be quite good at this. Maybe, yeah. You know? But I am worried in terms of reference points, like, like I haven't seen anything. Mm-hmm. Well, that ever that's how I felt about rom-coms. Mm. And I was surprised at how many I've actually seen. And I think you'll be surprised you probably have seen. I think I you'll be yet. surprised. Well, that, that's great, though. That'll be fun. Like, I like, because yeah. that, that'll make our sleepover, which we will definitely do. Yes. Maybe more, more than fun. one. Yeah, we might yeah. have to do a couple. Yeah. I have to do it in the day, because it's scary. Ooh. Yeah. I feel like, well, when I was... Like twelve, I wanted to. I wasn't allowed to watch violent things growing up, also, so I wasn't like sensitized to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then all the other kids were like watching them and thought it was cool, so I was like, "Please, please, just let me watch one so I can be part of this." <laughs> and then I picked Nightmare on Elm Street, which to this day is still my favorite Classic. horror movie. Freddy Krueger. Mm -hmm. And I watched it, and it was just like it's kind of like when you like want to get into jazz or whatever, and you're just sitting there like, "God." So, <laughs> so much. Homework, uh, yeah. homework watching. And I was like, I loved it. Let's get another one next weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, while I haven't seen a lot of horror movies, watched them, sometimes I get curious and I go read the Wikipedia synopsis. Okay. Uh, so sometimes I. What, some examples you've read? Like the, uh, the movie Us uh, seemed oh, yeah. intriguing. So I went and read that synopsis. <laughs> So sometimes I do that. I could do that for this show whenever yeah. I want. Nice. If I'm not ready to watch yeah. the movie, I could catch up. So, yeah, we're novices when it comes to horror, which is exactly why, for our first interview of the season, we wanted to talk to Eduardo Sanchez. Not only has he made a dozen horror films and TV shows, but he's taught clueless actors how to make a horror film before. In fact, 
That is how they made the Blair Witch. The leads, Mike, Josh, and Heather, filmed everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we took them through a little mini film school before, you know, like camera, whatever. And and I remember um, Heather was was walking around with the camera zoomed in all the way. So <laughs> after the, we were like, if you're walking, you got to zoom out all the way because, you know, it's already shaky. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, you know, but, but yeah, you know how it is. You can't stabilize a, a, a zoomed in image, you know? Mm -hmm. So we taught them stuff like that, but we liked that they were kind of learning because, you know, they were supposed to be film students. They weren't supposed to be professional. And we kind of, you know, we wanted to, you know, wanted them to make the characters. That's why we call them by their real names. And then is it true? Like you didn't have a, like a script or like a fully written script, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we wanted the film to feel real and we wanted to, you know, not have, we knew we were not going to write a script with dialogue. And so we wrote a script that had all the beats, but without dialogue. And cause we knew that the movie was going to be improvised. Mm. So when it came down to shooting, uh, my producer, Greg Hale, he came up with the idea of like, why don't we leave the actors in the, in the woods, <laughs> uh, you know, the whole time, the all, you know, eight days. And I was like, Dan and I were like, yeah, but how do you do that? <laughs> so he came up, he, he had been in the army and he had, uh, he had actually been in an exercise where they throw you in the woods for like three days without any food and you have to like survive. And then um, like a fake Russian battalion comes through and picks you up and takes you to like a POW camp. They waterboard you. Mm. Like they go all out and just to teach you like, all right, this is kind of, you know, that you could have, this could happen to you. So he was like, let's do that to the actors, you know, not waterboard them, but you know. <laughs> um, so he he came up with this system of like, you know, leading the actors like a scavenger hunt. But he basically, we set up like this, you know, go here at two o'clock, be at this place by sundown, be here, whatever. And we gave them like little directing notes, you know, three or four times a day that we would just leave in their camp. We would just leave in their campsite or leave in their, you know, in the waypoint. So we would say, go to waypoint five, be there by like three o'clock and look for notes, you know. Mm -hmm. And then in those notes, it would have like logistical information about what you had to do the rest of the day, but also had like Heather's pissing you off and, you know, Mike is annoying. And I, you know, I just kind of personal, interpersonal kind of, you know, dialogue that was happening inside the characters' minds. And they weren't allowed to show it to the notes to each other, obviously. You know, and I think that like Blair Witch is um, a little different than most found footage movies because of that, because we literally were not around to, to screw it up. <laughs> right. Some essential reading, how to stay alive in the woods, because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. Um, had you seen any um, found footage stuff? I mean, you like you started a whole subgenre. Yeah. What, which is incredible. Like, did you invent it? <laughs> no, no. I mean, no. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I wish. Um, no, I mean, w you know, from that meeting after the, you know, the Freddy's Dead movie, we actually spent the weekend like renting. Um, horror movies and just stuff that we liked when we were kids. Like, let's go back and watch the movies that scared us as kids. So we rented, a, you know, Exorcist, I think, and Shining. And, but we also rented these um, uh, these movies like like The Legend of Boggy Creek. And uh, we, we found the uh, a couple of VHSs of, like, that old show In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, which Dan and I, like, both agreed was, like, the scariest television we we had ever seen and and it was basically like 
we love the idea of like these pseudo documentaries that treated everything as reality, you know, and like interviewed people who had seen Bigfoot or had, you know, had UFO mm. experiences. Like to us, that was like so creepy because like, you know, it's a documentary, man. I mean, it's like, you know, you, people are telling you, supposedly they're telling you the truth and it's hard to, to call everybody a liar when they're telling it to the camera, you know? And, and those things really scared me as a kid. Like I remember watching, uh, you know, the Bigfoot episode of In Search of and having to like change the channel periodically. <laughs> but anyway, we, we really love these kind of pseudo documentaries. So we were like, you know, I wonder if you could do that, you know, now. And mm -hmm. that's where right. the idea of Blair Witch came. From CBC Podcasts and Kelly and Kelly, that was Let's Make a Horror. It's hosted by Ryan Beal, Mark Chavez, and Maddie Kelly. That episode was written and produced by Dave Shumka and Chris Kelly. Later this month, governments of the world will gather in Dubai for the COP28 climate conference, and they've got their work cut out for them. Countries around the world, including Canada, are way behind on their commitments to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. And global carbon emissions are still rising every year. The podcast Drilled bills itself as a true crime podcast about climate change, and they investigate the people, companies, and governments that are the most responsible for the mess we're in. Their latest season is called The Real Free Speech Threat, and it's about the global trend towards criminalizing climate protest. Drilled is created and hosted by Amy Westervelt, who's with me now. Amy, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Why did you call this season The Real Free Speech Threat? Well, I had been seeing for the last couple of years um, this trend amongst a lot of Kind of thought leaders and pundits to really wring their hands about various things that they were calling censorship. And I started to see that that kind of spread to things like fact checking. Um, there were a couple people that I saw referring to fact checkers at newspapers as being part of the censorship industrial complex. Um, there was kind of just a lot of that going on. And meanwhile, I was not seeing any of these people who seemed to be very concerned about protecting free speech, saying anything about this kind of rapid spread of legislation and lawsuits that were really aimed at curbing the free speech of citizens. And you specifically hone in on climate protests being criminalized. Yeah. Um, can you give me some examples of how that's happening around the world? Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, these laws, you know, once these laws are passed, they apply to any kind of protest, not just climate protests. But what's what we're seeing is that climate protest is explicitly being cited as the reason for these laws being necessary. So there are a batch of laws um, in the U.S., also in Canada, in Australia and a few other places that deal with what they call critical infrastructure. And this kind of started out as being a reaction to pipeline protests. But now the definition of critical infrastructure can include, you know, roads, bridges, railways, power stations. You're you're kind of near some piece of critical infrastructure almost anywhere you would be in a city, for example. So it's really kind of curbed where people are allowed 
to protest. And then it's also increased the fines and jail time associated with those protests, which is concerning, you know, to see similar sorts of laws being passed in multiple places at the same time. And then also to see other sorts of repression in terms of, you know, going after nonprofits and also lawyers in some countries and journalists as well. And how is this happening in Canada or is it happening in Canada as well? It is happening in Canada. You know, the Coastal Gas Link is a good example where the developers of that project got a permit from the Canadian government, but wanted to build that pipeline through territory that's Wet'suwet'en territory. And they specifically voted against allowing the pipeline, but the pipeline company decided to sue um, two of the individuals involved in that decision. And because they had filed a suit, were able to get an injunction from the courts, which meant that the courts were saying no one can impede the progress of this pipeline. So then that um, that unleashes the RCMP. And, and you sent us some clips of the interviews that you did for this particular episode you're talking about. And I would love to play one of those now. Um, this is Chris Statnick. He's a lawyer specializing in First Nation title rights and disputes and a member of the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation. And he's explaining some of these tactics used by the RCMP to enforce that injunction. Let's take a listen. Simply trying to exercise these constitutionally protected rights is being met with criminalization and police enforcement arrests, several people being charged now for criminal contempt for being arrested for breaching the injunction. Quite significant, I would say also surveillance activities on people's intruding into their privacy and and their right to privacy. It was later revealed by the Guardian that the RCMP had instructions in enforcing that injunction to Uh, essentially use as much violence as was warranted and that they had authorization to use lethal oversight, essentially the ability to have snipers pointing their guns at unarmed Indigenous land defenders and, you know, prepared to shoot and kill, which was a pretty terrifying thing to consider. So, Amy, what was your reaction when you first heard that? Actually, I was I was surprised, actually. I, um, you know, have been looking at this stuff in the U.S. And I think that in a lot of places in, you know, what we would call like the global north, people think that things like police shooting and killing unarmed activists is like something that only happens in less developed countries, you know. But the, honestly, in reporting this, what I've been seeing is that in you know, Canada, the US, the UK, actually, there's more of a crackdown than even what I've seen in Latin America, which is, I think, quite surprising for for people who maybe think of of these countries as having more advanced democracies. Hmm. And one of your episodes this season focuses on a global network of think tanks. Could you describe the role that Atlas Network plays in all of this? Yeah. So the Atlas Network is a group of now nearly 600 think tanks. And they started uh, back in you know the 60s and 70s in the UK with one think tank. It was called the Institute 
for Economic Affairs in the UK. There was a guy named Anthony Fisher who started that. And the, the whole kind of reason for that and subsequent think tanks was to shift political will in a particular direction. And the whole idea behind his initial think tank and then ultimately the the Atlas Network in general was really to um, to be able to have a mouthpiece for industry that was not directly tied to any one company. So he got pretty early funding from BP and Shell to do various white papers and disseminate them to universities um, and really like to produce research that looks very credible and very legitimate and does not disclose anywhere that it's funded by any particular corporate interests. And it worked so well that it started to get attention outside of the UK. And actually the first place that that happened was Canada. They invited Fisher to come over and he helped to start the Fraser Institute right around the time that that Canada was starting to get, you know, really involved in developing the tar sands oil. So you see there again in the early board of the Fraser Institute, you've got multiple oil companies, you've got the Royal Bank of Canada, which was, you know, heavily funding fossil fuel development at the time. So now, fast forward decades, um, many of those think tanks have been doing quite a bit to vilify climate protesters. In some cases, Atlas think tanks actually have written the legislation that gets passed to criminalize protest. That happened in both the US and the UK. Um, and that's like, not just me speculating, that is 100% documented and said out loud. You've been criticized for being biased in favor of climate activists in your reporting. What's your response to that? Um, I like to say that I'm biased in favor of the truth. I actually like I have, you know, issues with how climate activists do some of their work as well. And I think that there are some similar problems with a lot of environmental NGOs in terms of not being transparent about funding or, um, you know, overly trying to shape a narrative in the media, all of that stuff like that happens on the side of, of the environmental movement as well. Uh, but I feel like in this case, when we're looking at laws that are criminalizing protest, there's a very clear way that that happened, which we're, you know, presenting information on and documenting. And there is a very clear impact from that, which affects anyone, whether they are, you know, wanting to protest for climate or they're wanting to protest against taxation. So, you know, in my mind, it's sort of like um, reporting on protest being overly criminalized shouldn't be a sort of a partisan or issue-based thing. It's it's happening. People have said out loud why they're pushing for these laws. We've tracked down the funding. And, you know, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that if you have the receipts on that kind of stuff, then it's equally biased not to share it. Hmm. And why do you think people should give your show a listen? I like to say because we ha we don't say anything without the receipts. We have like a, an extensive amount of documentation <laughs> for every single thing that goes into the show. And all of those documents are available on our website. Um, I'm very big on 
you know, sending people the primary documents to figure it out for themselves. You know, we I I have had many, many, many conversations with people who you know, don't believe in climate change or don't think it's that bad or don't think we should act. And um, I am kind of like, OK, that it, you're everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I think it's important for you to have all of this information first and then go and think about it and decide. So. Um, so, yeah, we have a big focus on the receipts. Great. I love receipts. I yeah. love to see the receipts. That's great. <laughs> Amy, thank you for joining us on Podcast Playlist today. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Westervelt is an investigative journalist and the creator and host of the podcast Drilled. Let's listen to some of it now. Here's Amy. She's going to start us off with a bit of the history of climate protest. Labeling protesters as terrorists has proven to be an effective tactic for decades. It's a term that has the power to transform someone using nonviolent tactics to protect their ancestral homeland into a threat deserving the attention of a nation's highest law enforcement or even military officials. It also comes with sentencing enhancements that can dramatically increase the jail time someone serves if convicted. The label often requires first redefining the term violence to cover harm to property. In the U.S., that was underway by the 80s. Among the initial targets were Earth-first anti-logging activists because they deployed monkey-wrenching tactics like sitting in trees to stop them from being cut down and sabotaging logging equipment. Here's Jeremy Walker, a professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, who researches various things related to the obstruction of climate action. One of the key activists in California was a, a woman called Judy Bari. Judy Bari was very successful in mobilizing, you know, protest people to come and actually occupy logging operations and get in the way. And the problem with Judy Bari was that she was very good at speaking to the logging company's employees and the unions. And the classic tactic that was used against environments, of course, saying, oh, they just want to take your jobs away. But she managed to win the forestry unions on side and work with them towards a kind of, you know, proposing a kind of forestry plan. And then at some point, uh, Judy Bari with her partner got into their car and a bomb exploded in their car. And um, interestingly enough, the local police were quickly uh, put off the case and someone came in from the FBI and they charged Judy Bari, they said they, they accused her of carrying a bomb to blow something up and that, that her own bomb had gone off and disabled her. Barry spent the next few decades maintaining her innocence, asking the police to investigate what she and her fellow activist Gerald Cherney said was clearly an assassination attempt and fighting to force the FBI to preserve the evidence that proved it. Barry died in 1997, so she wasn't alive to see the FBI and Oakland police eventually pay Earth First $4.4 million for violating their constitutional rights. But even when activists get justice or when the charges don't stick in the first place, accusations of terrorism can keep people tied up in court for years and have a general chilling effect on activism. Painting environmentalists as terrorists took off again in the U.S. with the Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front in the 1990s and early 2000s. Both groups used vandalism and in some cases arson to get their point across. 
Here's Earth Liberation Front activist Daniel McGowan explaining it in a 2011 Frontline documentary. You saw the mills. Are you going into the forest and you stumble upon a clear cut? Like, it just blew me away. Just the, the arrogance of it. I was like, man, this is butchered. You know, it made me think, like, why are we being so gentle? Why are we so gentle in our activism when this is what's happening, you know? Other ELF activists would explain over the years that they realized that in some cases, burning down a building or breaking machinery accomplished something that letter writing and other types of political activism had failed to do for years. Shut down the activity they were trying to protest. By the time ELF was at its most active, industry groups had already spent years sharing information on environmental activists and the movement in general with the FBI and pressuring the agency to take stronger action against eco-sabotage. But it wasn't until 9-11 and the launch of a global war on terrorism that the label of eco-terrorists really stuck. It's a theme that has repeated itself in other places. When governments crack down on so-called terrorists, environmental defenders are often netted in the process. The FBI spent decades hunting down ELF activists. At one point, the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front were deemed the country's primary domestic terrorism concern. Activists from those groups were placed on the FBI's most wanted list right along with Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden, of course, was wanted in connection with the September 11th attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people. By contrast, neither the Earth Liberation Front nor the Animal Liberation Front ever killed anyone. But the FBI justified chasing after them by accusing them of a sort of economic terrorism that kept logging and mining and animal agriculture companies afraid that they might be the next target, that theirs might be the next building set ablaze. Jess's home was raided by the FBI. And then two years later, a federal grand jury indicted Jess on multiple charges and she was placed on house arrest. And in her sentencing hearing in 2021, she received an eight-year prison sentence. This is Charlotte Grubman, a researcher, abolitionist, and organizer for the Free Jess team. Jess is Jessica Reznicek, who's been in jail for two years now and was labeled as a domestic terrorist for using welding tools to pierce above-ground valves along the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa. Many of the Ocheti Shakawan water protectors that launched the fight to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline also faced harsh sentences and violent police tactics and bore the trauma of watching their homeland transformed into a militarized zone with armored personnel carriers, attack dogs, helicopters flying above, and an army of police, National Guard members, and ex-military private security guards all working together to protect the pipeline. But Reznicek was one of the only pipeline opponents actually convicted for terrorism. And she was a domestic terrorism enhancement and was ordered to pay $3.2 million to Energy Transfer Partners, which owns the Dakota Access Pipeline, in restitution. Another activist who joined Reznicek in the sabotage, Ruby Montoya, received a similar sentence. However, in the midst of the grueling prosecution, Montoya flipped her defense, arguing that she'd been coerced into these actions. 
It's an often overlooked but common feature of criminalization. Under pressure from the state, movement members at times turn against their former collaborators and friends, causing painful and deeply personal divisions within the movement and particular communities. From Critical Frequency, that was a clip from the podcast Drilled. It's created and hosted by Amy Westervelt. Their team includes Aline Brown, Sarah Ventry, and Martin Zaltz-Ostwick. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Love Island, Too Hot to Handle, The Bachelor. Put a bunch of hot people on a beach, dangle some cash in front of them, roll the cameras, and let the sparks fly. It's a pretty good formula for reality TV. Something about it pushes the right buttons in our lizard brains that just makes us want to gawk. It's also a formula that's ripe for satire. Which brings us to our next podcast, Murder on Sex Island. It's a murder mystery that takes place on the set of a trashy reality show called Sex Island. But it's actually also a book written by actor and comedian Joe Firestone. And she's turned it into a combination of podcast and audiobook, releasing a new batch of chapters every week. Joe Firestone is here now to tell us more. Welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much. What a great intro. You've said you've summed it up better than I have in several, several <laughs> tries. So nice work. Great, great. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. That was good. So I would love for the listeners to have a little plot summary of what this show is about. Totally. You you summed it up great, where it's basically about this television show and uh, this very cute contestant David G he goes missing so they call up this glamorous detective Luella Van Horn to come solve the case but what they don't tell her until she gets there is that uh, she has to go undercover as a contestant but she is uh, like significantly older than the contestants on the show so there's you know trials and tribulations with that but also the other thing is that Luella Van Horn isn't a real person uh, she's actually undercover already. So this woman is going double undercover, which is, you know, if it's not already, it should be a literary trope. Yeah. And can you tell us more about the protagonist, Marie Jones, and her alter ego, Luella Van Horn? Okay, so Marie Jones, she's kind of a plain, mousy, ex-social worker. She was from Staten Island, and she's she just wants to run away from her life, right? So she makes up this alter ego named Luella Van Horn, who solves cases. And she kind of gets into this idea that Luella is everything that she's not. She's blonde. She's hot. She's capable. She's uh, aggressive. And Marie starts to think that if only I could just, you know, live my life full time as Luella, you know, that everything would be solved. And so she moves to Manhattan and she gets, you know, she decides that this this could happen, that her life could be different. If it may be just one more case where it goes right. And uh, so this is that case. 
and we hope that it goes right. And what made you want to write this as a book? Because I know that you you write a lot of different formats. You write for television and obviously for podcasts and all of these different things. So so why a book? Well, I had a what you'd call an extended amount of unemployed time. And uh, I, I love mysteries so much. I love them. I read them all the time. And so I thought, well, maybe I can write a mystery and... This could be the way that I uh, support myself because that seems like you don't have to wait for someone to call. You just write these books. And um, then I tried to sell it and they no one wanted it. And so then I said, OK, well, I've written a whole book. I might as well self-publish it. And I did that. And then I thought, well, maybe a way for people to hear it and to kind of get just to get the story out there is to release it as a podcast. And so that is what I did with uh, Barry Finkel, who's producing it, and Gabrielle Lewis, who helps edit it. It's really interesting that you connect so much to mystery because I feel like um, mystery and horror are the two genres that are still producing kind of original content everywhere and and that people really connect to and still want to engage with. Um, Why do you think that is? What is it about like a good mystery that people connect with? Well, I guess unlike reality TV. So reality TV, it's like it's going to be uncomfortable and it's never going to get comfortable. You could watch it for years and it'll never have a peaceful episode, right? Like they'll never start getting along. And with a mystery, there is a built-in formula that is a reliable structure where it's like you know that once things get messed up they're going to get more messed up and more messed up until ultimately they will stop being messed up and you will have peace when you finish the book and I think that that is something that people well I crave I want something to tell me things are okay I don't need the whole book to be okay but I need something at the end to say don't worry we got we've we solved this one this one's case closed and I think that's why it's so satisfying Okay, so you enjoy the predictability uh, mm-hmm. of a mystery and the closure. So mm-hmm. what do you enjoy about watching reality shows like Sex Island? Because there's so many of them. And let's face it, most of us are watching them. So why are we connecting to those? Like what connects you to those? Well, I watch these things wanting there to be an episode where they just like eat food and smile. You know, That's what I want <laughs> so bad. And it's like this unfulfilled Uh, yearning and I keep hoping that because sometimes they sprinkle in a little bit of it sometimes they'll be like oh look at them they're just drinking wine having a nice time and it's like it's enough they give you enough to want you know to hope for that yeah you said you write in this book and you delivered it so perfectly on the show that you're and you're talking about this fake sex island that the show was somehow both addictive and completely unwatchable and i felt like that was a perfect summary of what these shows are um and i just thought it was so brilliantly <laughs> brilliantly done because i was oh, like that's thanks. very correct yeah i well it's like I, I don't know if you watch real housewives i watch a lot of real housewives and i tried to watch the new one in new york there's a new uh-huh. cast and I'm like, I'm really, you know, it's, I got some hometown pride, right? And so then, but I'm watching it. And every time I watch it, my dog starts shaking. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the frequency or something happens. I want to watch it. My dog has a physical reaction to it. And it's like, I think that that is kind of, if you combined uh, 
my dog and my reactions. That's what I think a lot of people would feel watching these things. And and I'm wondering because you're an actor as well. Was the intention when you when you wrote the book to always release it as an audio book or a podcast? No, I no, I really did think this would be a big hit, and then, and as a book, and then I think it was just like at that point. You know, I think with this industry and comedy and stuff, there's so much rejection and there's so much, there's so many roadblocks and like to get, bring your idea to fruition is, it's almost impossible. And I think that I just kind of had a moment of clarity where it's like, okay, if you just self-publish it and put it out as a podcast and make things happen on your own and and like there's no gatekeepers, you're just doing it, then you can get your idea out, which is the point in the first place. And so I think that it came out from a place of like, just uh being able to share something that I made that hopefully people will enjoy and right. like having it simple as that. And did you find that it, it would ultimately be simpler to release it and more accessible to release it as a serialized podcast instead of an audiobook? Yeah, I didn't understand how to do audiobook. So <laughs> this was it was kind of like I do understand how to do podcasts, so I'll do it like that. And I I mean, I watch a lot of serialized mysteries and I thought, you know, as long as you get a recap, people will be on board. They just need a little recap. Right. So you so you love reality TV and mysteries. I'm wondering if there's anything autobiographical about the character of Marie Jones slash Luella Van Horn. I don't, I, a lot, some people have said that because I think, I guess some people could describe me as mousy, but if someone was murdered in my vicinity, I would never (laughs) in my life pursue it. I would, (laughs) I would run. And so I I think that this is, um, it, unfortunately, this is, this character is much braver than I ever would be. The theme of this episode that we're we're recording this for is straight to the source. So we're asking podcasters to tell the audience why they should listen to your podcast. So why do you think people should listen? Well, I guess it's a great escape and it'll hopefully hook you in and make you chuckle and uh, if you're having a hard time in your regular life you can get sucked into this story where Luella is having hopefully a harder time than you but ultimately it potential I'm not going to promise it but it will maybe end well well Joe thank you so much for coming on to podcast playlist and telling us about the show I'm looking Thank forward to Thank you for it. having me. Joe Firestone is an actor and comedian and the author of Murder on Sex Island. It's available now as a paperback and ebook and of course as a podcast. We're going to listen to a little sampling of the podcast now and we're going to pick up the story right as Marie in disguise as Luella is about to have her on-camera debut. And just a warning, there's nothing graphic but this clip does contain sexual themes and might not be appropriate for children. What felt like 20 hours later, Issa was back at my trailer door. I looked at the clock. It was now 8 a.m. Miss Van Horn, we'd like to invite you to sit. I swear I felt my stomach go out my rectum. I followed Issa as she weaved us in and out of a throng of busy crew people. I felt self-conscious being nearly naked and kept hovering my hands over the bottom half of my body. I had one hand in front and one in back like I was going for an Adam and Eve fig leaf sort of thing. 
It's not that I wasn't okay with my body the way it was. Sure, I've got a belly and my ass has gotten flatter and wider every day since I turned 27. But I was fine with all that. Because until now, I never had to be practically naked on camera next to 20-year-old reality TV stars. This experience was already a major turning point in my self-esteem. Everyone on the cruise seemed to be doing something important. Hanging lights, carrying ladders, wearing actual clothes. Even drinking a coffee seemed to be an activity of significance around here. Adjacent to the parking lot where they kept the trailers and gear trucks was a stunning white sand beach. I must have missed it in the darkness the night before. I followed as Issa made a right turn, and suddenly there was sand beneath me. It was soft, powdery, and the color of tapioca pudding. Once we were on the beach, I got my first good look at the ocean. The blue of the water made me gasp. The color was cartoonishly vibrant, as if it were drawn in magic marker. Issa was seemingly over the whole beautiful vista thing. She looked at her watch and sighed. You can go see the water if you're quick about it. Two minutes tops. I made my way down to the shore. The water was so clear there I could see little fish and shells and individual grains of sand. The waves were gentle, making swooshing sounds that were nearly hypnotic. And I kid you not, the palm trees were swaying in the breeze. I'll stop. Two minutes on the dot later, Issa wrangled me back, leading me to a large beach hut covered in tropical flowers. As we got closer, I recognized Phil and waved to him. He waved back and I blushed. Absolutely humiliating. I felt like an eighth grader. Phil was standing with a few other cast members I recognized as Tasha, Sarah, David N., Nate, Ethan, and Blair. Oh, I loved Blair. She could be so mean. One time she stuck a wad of chewed gum in Sarah's long blonde hair because she couldn't find a trash can. She had curly brown hair, a flat stomach, and I'll say it, breasts the size of cantaloupes. It's possible Blair was made in a lab for reality TV. As I approached the group, Issa made introductions. Hey folks, this is Luella. She's going to be joining us as a wild card. Me, the wild card? Hi. I tried hard to swallow anything that could be misconstrued as fangirl energy. The collective group murmured some casual hellos. Nate even flashed me a peace sign. For them, I gathered this was just a typical Wednesday. They all looked so different in person. David N. wasn't nearly as skinny, and I noticed for the first time he had bright green eyes. On television, Ethan looked practically orange, but here he just looked like a guy who got his money's worth at the tanning booth. I could see Sarah's individual toe rings. I counted seven. Issa got a far-off look as someone spoke into her earpiece. All right, in a few minutes, Luella's going to be coming in through the hibiscus arch camera left. I need jealous reactions from Sarah and Blair and a sexy reaction from Nate. I tried to remind myself this was somehow detective work. Phil spoke up. Hey, Issa, I'd like to do a sexy reaction, too. Nate let out an exasperated whine. Why can't I be the only sexy one for once? Issa held up her finger, waiting for the person in the earpiece to respond. Okay, we're going to have both Nate and Phil giving sexy reactions. Nate sulked. Issa continued. Ethan and David N., let's have you wrestling in the background. And Tasha, we just want you to stand there. Tasha crossed her arms and looked toward the ocean her long black hair shining in the sun. No, bitch, she said under her breath. For what it's worth, Tasha did technically just stand there. I was amongst professionals. I was escorted to the hibiscus arch camera left. Issa got that far-off look again as someone in her earpiece gave her further instructions. A sound guy came over to give me a microphone pack on a lanyard. As he placed it around my neck, he muttered, just don't touch it and you'll be good. I'd once heard that same sentence from my 85-year-old male gynecologist.
Issa addressed me. Luella, you're going to walk through the hibiscus arch, shake your hair, and give a smoldering look to camera. This footage will be in slow motion, so try not to blink at all. And stop covering your body. That's why you're here. Ready? In four, three, two, action. And just like that, Issa was gone and I was left to smolder and not blink and be practically naked on national television. I decided to just focus on the not blinking. I looked at Phil, who was looking back at me in a way I can only describe as, we're having sex right now. I had been married for six years and had never been looked at like that before. I tried to remember this was for television, that there were hot lights everywhere and cameras, and I was here to find a missing man, and if all that weren't enough, this wasn't even me. Phil was staring at Luella Van Horn, but I still couldn't get enough of that look. Which was great, because we did that same thing 14 times. 14 times I walked through the hibiscus arch, and 14 times he stared at me like I was a Christmas ham. But the thing is, I kind of loved being the Christmas ham. I started to understand why all these people did was have sex and scream at each other. A makeup artist came up to me between takes 11 and 12. She introduced herself as Hannah. Honey, I know you do your own makeup, but you're sweating like a pig. Okay if I give you a little dab? Oh, sure, I said. Pig. Pig becoming ham. After that 14th take, Issa came back and announced they had gotten what they needed and we could all take a break. I decided I had done enough acting for one day. It was time to do my real job and find David G. Before I could reorient myself toward the parking lot, I found Phil standing right in front of me. Hey, great work out there. I think we have something going, yeah? He shifted his weight from one Prada flip-flop to the other. I looked at him for a second, trying to see if he was serious. Now you're kind of funny. He raised his eyebrows at me. I'm serious. You're cute. Uh, I gotta go do something. And with that excellent line, I ran away on the sand and heels, which in itself is a huge accomplishment. That was a clip from Murder on Sex Island. It's written and hosted by Joe Firestone. Their team includes Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. And there you have it. Three podcasters, three podcasts. I hope you heard something today worthy of adding to your queue. If you did and you want to know more, we have links and more info on everything you heard today at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Technical support this week from Emily Chiarvesio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.